Chapter Eleven B of the Book of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Chapter Eleven, Part B. But there is a peculiarity to these inscribed objects. They remind me of the records left by Sir John Franklin in the Arctic, but also of attempts made by relief expeditions to communicate with the Franklin expedition. The lost explorers cached their records, or concealed them conspicuously in mounds. The relief expeditions sent up balloons, from which messages were dropped broadcast. Our data are of things that have been cached, and of things that seem to have been dropped. Or a lost expedition from somewhere. Explorers from somewhere, and their inability to return, then a long, sentimental, persistent attempt, in the spirit of our own Arctic relief expeditions, at least to establish communication. What if it may have succeeded? We think of India, the millions of natives who are ruled by a small band of exoterics, only because they receive support and direction from somewhere else or from England. In 1838, Mr. A. B. Tomlinson, owner of the great mound at Grave Creek, West Virginia, excavated the mound. He said that, in the presence of witnesses, he had found a small, flat, oval stone, or disk, upon which were engraved alphabetic characters. Colonel Whittlesey, an expert in these matters, says that the stone is now, quote, universally regarded by archaeologists as a fraud, quote. that, in his opinion, Mr. Tomlinson had been imposed upon. Avebury, Prehistoric Times, page 271. Quote, I mention it because it has been the subject of much discussion, but it is now generally admitted to be a fraud. It is inscribed with Hebrew characters, but the forger has copied the modern instead of the ancient form of the letters. As I have said, we're as irritable here, under the impression of the anthropologists, as ever were slaves in the South toward superiorities from quote, poor white trash. End quote. When we finally reverse our relative positions, we shall give lowest place to the anthropologists. A Dr. Gray does at least look at a fish before he conceives of a miraculous origin for it. We shall have to submerge Lord Avebury far below him, if we accept that the stone from Grave Creek is generally regarded as a fraud by eminent authorities who did not know it from some other object. Or, in general, that so decided an opinion must be the product of either deliberate disregard, or ignorance, or fatigue. The stone belongs to a class of phenomena that is repulsive to the system. It will not assimilate with the system. Let such an object be heard of by such a systematist as Avebury, and the mere mention of it is as nearly certainly the stimulus to a conventional reaction as is a charged body to an electroscope or a glass of beer to a prohibitionist. It is of the ideals of science to know one object from another 
before expressing an opinion upon a thing. But that is not the spirit of universal mechanics. A thing. It is attractive or repulsive. Its conventional reaction follows. Because it is not the stone from Grave Creek that is in Hebrew characters, either ancient or modern, it is a stone from Newark, Ohio, of which the story is told that a forger made this mistake of using modern instead of ancient Hebrew characters. We shall see that the inscription upon the Grave Creek stone is not in Hebrew. Or all things are presumed to be innocent, but are supposed to be guilty unless they assimilate. Colonel Whittlesey, Western Reserve Historical Tracts, number 33, says that the Grave Creek stone was considered a fraud by Wilson, Squires, and Davis. Then he comes to the Congress of Archaeologists at Nancy, France, 1875. It is hard for Colonel Whittlesey to admit that, at this meeting, which sounds important, the stone was endorsed. He reminds us of Mr. Simons and the man who considered that he saw something. Colonel Whittlesey's somewhat torturous expression is that the finder of the stone, quote, so imposed his views, end quote, upon the Congress, that it pronounced the stone genuine. Also, the stone was examined by Schoolcraft. He gave his opinion for genuineness. Or, there's only one process, and see-saw is one of its aspects. Three or four fat experts on the side against us. We find four or five plump ones on our side. Or all that we call logic and reasoning ends up as sheer preponderance or avoir du poids. Then several philologists came out in favor of genuineness. Some of them translated the inscription. Of course, as we have said, it is our method, or the method of orthodoxy, way in which all conclusions are reached, to have some awfully eminent, or preponderantly plump, authorities with us whenever we can. In this case, however, we feel just a little apprehensive in being caught in such excellently obese, but somewhat negativized company. Translation by Mr. John Bird. Thy orders are laws. Thou shinest in impetuous elan and rapid chamois. End quote. Mr. Maurice Schwab, quote, The chief of emigration who reached these places, or this island, has fixed these characters forever. End quote. Mr. Oppert, quote, The grave of one who was assassinated here. May God, to revenge him, strike his murderer, cutting off the hand of his existence. End quote. I like the first one the best. I have such a vivid impression from it of someone polishing up brass or something. And in an awful hurry. Of course, the third is more dramatic. Still, they're all very good. They are perturbations of one another, I suppose. In Tract 44, Colonel Whittlesey returns to the subject. He gives the conclusion of Major de Hellward at the Congress of Luxembourg, 1877. Quote, if Professor Red and myself are right in the conclusion that the figures are neither of the runic, Phoenician, Canaanite, 
Hebrew, Libyan, Celtic, or any other alphabet language, its importance has been greatly overrated. End quote. Obvious to a child, obvious to any mentality not helplessly subjected to a system. That just therein lies the importance of this object. It is said that an ideal of science is to find out the new. But unless a thing be of the old, it is unimportant. Quote, it is not worth while. Hovey. Then the inscribed axe or wedge, which, according to Dr. John C. Evans, in a communication to the American Ethnological Society, was ploughed up near Pemberton, New Jersey, 1859. The characters upon this axe, or wedge, are strikingly similar to the characters on the Grave Creek stone. Also, with a little disregard here and a little more there, they look like tracks in the snow by someone who's been out celebrating, or like your handwriting, or mine, when we think there's a certain distinction in illegibility. Method of disregard. Anything's anything. Dr. Abbott describes this object in the report of the Smithsonian Institution, 1875-260. He says he has no faith in it. All progress is from the outrageous to the commonplace, or quasi-existence proceeds from rape to the crooning of lullabies. It's been interesting to me to go over various long-established periodicals and note controversies between attempting positivist and then intermediatistic issues. Bold, bad intruders of theories, ruffians with dishonorable intentions, the alarms of science, her attempts to preserve that which is dearer than life itself, submission, then a fidelity like Mrs. Micawber's. So many of these ruffians, or wandering comedians, that were hated, or scorned, pitied, embraced, conventionalized. There's not a notion in this book that has a more frightful or ridiculous mean that had the notion of human footprints in rocks, when that now respectabilized ruffian or clown was first heard from. It seems bewildering to one whose interests are not scientific that such rows should be raised over such trifles. But the feeling of a systematist toward such an intruder is just about what anyone's would be if a tramp from the street should come in, sit at one's dinner-table, and say he belonged there. We know what hypnosis can do. Let him insist with all his might that he does belong there, and one begins to suspect that he may be right, that he may have higher perceptions of what's right. The prohibitionists have this worked out very skillfully. So the row that was raised over the stone from Grave Creek, but time and cumulativeness, and the very factor we make so much of, or the power of massed data. There were other reports of inscribed stones, and then, half a century later, some mounds, or cache, as we call them, were opened by Reverend Mr. Gass, near the city of Davenport, American Antiquarian, 15-73. Several stone tablets were found. Upon one of them, the letters, quote, T.F.T. 
O-W-N-S, may easily be made out. In this instance, we hear nothing of fraudulency. Time, cumulativeness, the power of massed data. The attempt to assimilate this datum is that the tablet was probably of Mormon origin. Why? Because at Menden, Illinois, was found a brass plate, upon which were similar characters. Why that? Because that was found, quote, near a house once occupied by a Mormon, end quote. In a real existence, a real meteorologist, suspecting that cinders had come from a fire engine, would have asked a fireman. Tablets of Davenport. There's not a record findable that it ever occurred to any antiquarian to ask a Mormon. Other tablets were found. Upon one of them are two F's and two eights. Also a large tablet, twelve inches by eight to ten inches, quote, with Roman numerals and Arabic, end quote. It is said that the figure eight occurs three times, and that the figure, or letter O, seven times. Quote, with these familiar characters are others that resemble ancient alphabets, either Phoenician or Hebrew. End quote. It may be that the discovery of Australia, for instance, will turn out to be less important than the discovery and the meaning of these tablets. But where will you read of them in anything subsequently published? What antiquarian has ever since tried to understand them and their presence and indications of antiquity in a land that we're told was inhabited only by unlettered savages? These things that are exhumed only to be buried in some other way. Another tablet was found at Davenport by Mr. Charles Harrison, President of the American Antiquarian Society. Quote, Eight and other hieroglyphs are upon this tablet. End quote. This time also, fraud is not mentioned. My own notion is that it is very unsportsmanlike ever to mention fraud. Accept anything, then explain it your way. Anything that assimilates with one explanation must have assimilable relations, to some degree, with all other explanations, if all explanations are somewhere continuous. Mormons are lugged in again, but the attempt is faint and helpless, quote, because general circumstances make it difficult to explain the presence of these tablets, end quote. Altogether, our phantom resistance is mere attribution to the Mormons, without the slightest attempt to find base for the attribution. We think of messages that were showered upon this earth, and of messages that were cached in mounds upon this earth. The similarity to the Franklin situation is striking. Conceivably, centuries from now, objects dropped from relief expedition balloons may be found in the Arctic, and conceivably, there are still undiscovered caches left by Franklin, in the hope that relief expeditions would find them. It would be as incongruous to attribute these things to the Eskimos as to attribute tablets and lettered stones to the aborigines of America. Sometime I shall take up an expression that the queer-shaped mounds upon this earth were built by explorers from somewhere, unable to get back, 
designed to attract attention from some other world, and that a vast sword-shaped mound had been discovered upon the moon. Just now we think of lettered things and their two possible significances. A bizarre little lost soul, rescued from one of the morgues of the American Journal of Science. An account, sent by a correspondent to Professor Silliman, of something that was found in a block of marble, taken November 1829, from a quarry near Philadelphia, American Journal of Science, 1-19-361. The block was cut into slabs. By this process, it is said, was exposed an indentation in the stone, about one and a half inches by five-eighths of an inch. A geometric indentation. In it were two definite-looking raised letters, like I, U. Only difference is that the corners of the U are not rounded, but are straight angles. We are told that this block of stone came from a depth of seventy or eighty feet, or that, if acceptable, this lettering was done long, long ago. To some persons, not sated with the commonness of the incredible that has to be accepted, it may seem grotesque to think that an indentation in sand could have tons of other sand piled upon it and hardening into stone, without being pressed out. But the famous Nicaraguan footprints were found in a quarry under eleven strata of solid rock. There was no discussion of this datum. We only take it out for an airing. As to lettered stones that may once upon a time have been showered upon Europe, if we cannot accept that the stones were inscribed by indigenous inhabitants of Europe, many have been found in caves, whence they were carried as curiosities by prehistoric men, or as ornaments, I suppose, about the size and shape of the Grave Creek stone or disc, quote, flat and oval and about two inches wide. Solace. Characters painted upon them, found first by Mr. Piet in the cave of Madazil, Ariège. According to Solace, they are marked in various directions with red and black lines, quote, but on not a few of them more complex characters occur, which in a few instances simulate some of the capital letters of the Roman alphabet. End quote. In one instance, the letters F, E, I, accompanied by no other markings to modify them, are as plain as they could be. According to Solace, Ancient Hunters, page 95, Mr. Cartayac has confirmed the observations of Piet, and Mr. Boulle has found additional examples. Quote, they offer one of the darkest problems of prehistoric times. End quote. Solace. As to caches in general, I should say that they are made with two purposes, to proclaim and to conceal, or that caches and documents are hidden, or covered over in conspicuous structures. At least, so are designed the cairns in the Arctic. Transcripts of the New York Academy of Sciences, 11-27 That Mr. J. H. Hooper, Bradley County, Tennessee, having come upon a curious stone in some woods upon his farm, investigated. He dug. 
he unearthed a long wall. Upon this wall were inscribed many alphabetic characters. Quote, 872 characters have been examined, many of them duplicates, and a few imitations of animal forms, the moon, and other objects. Accidental imitations of oriental alphabets are numerous. End quote. The part that seems significant, that these letters had been hidden under a layer of cement. And still, in our own heterogeneity, or unwillingness, or inability to concentrate upon single concepts, we shall, or we shan't, accept that though there may have been a lost colony or lost expedition from somewhere upon this earth, and extra-mundane visitors who could never get back, there have been other extra-mundane visitors who have gone away again, altogether quite in analogy with the Franklin expedition and fury flittings in the Arctic. And the wreck that occurred to one group of them, and the loot that was lost overboard. The Chinese seals of Ireland. Not the things with the big wistful eyes that lie on ice, and that are taught to balance objects on their noses, but inscribed stamps with which to make impressions. Proceedings of the Royal Irish Academy, 1-381. A paper was read by Mr. J. Hubbard Smith, descriptive of about a dozen Chinese seals that have been found in Ireland. They are all alike, each a cube with an animal seated upon it. Quote, it is said that the inscriptions upon them are of a very ancient class of Chinese characters. The three points that have made a leper and an outcast of this datum, but only in the sense of disregard, because nowhere that I know of is it questioned. Agreement among archaeologists is that there were no relations in the remote past between China and Ireland, that no other objects from ancient China, virtually, I suppose, have ever been found in Ireland. The great distance at which these seals have been found apart. After Mr. Smith's investigations, if he did investigate, or do more than record, many more Chinese seals were found in Ireland, and, with one exception, only in Ireland. In 1852, about sixty had been found, of all archaeologic finds in Ireland, quote, none is enveloped in greater mystery, end quote. Chambers Journal, 16-364. According to the writer in Chambers Journal, one of these seals was found in a curiosity shop in London. When questioned, the shopkeeper said that it had come from Ireland. In this instance, if you don't take instinctively to our expression, there is no orthodox explanation for your preference. It is the astonishing scattering of them, over field and forest, that has hushed the explainers. In the proceedings of the Royal Irish Academy, 10-171, Dr. Fraser says that they, quote, appear to have been sown broadcast over the county in some strange way that I cannot offer a solution of, end quote. The struggle for expression of a notion that did not belong to Dr. Fraser's era, quote, the invariable story of their find is what we might expect if they had been accidentally dropped. Three 
were found in Tipperary, six in Cork, three in Don, four in Waterford, all of the rest, one or two to a county. But one of these Chinese seals was found in the bed of the river Boyne, near Colnard, Meath, when workmen were raising gravel. That one, at least, had been dropped there. End of Chapter 11 Read by J.C. Guan Montreal, November 2008